everyone. I'm Dr. Pam Maragliano Muniz, and welcome to Dentistry Unmasked. With me, as always, Dr. David Rice. Hey, Doc Pam, what's shaking? Hey, not too much. I'm so excited for today because we are spending our time with one of my absolute faves, Dr. Nate Lawson. Nate, welcome. Hi, Pam. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. So earlier, I was talking to Nate, and I had to reference him as the Bill Nye the Science Guy of dentistry. And I think that's like pretty darn spot on. I feel like, Nate, you've made science interesting and relatable, and we can roll up our sleeves and use your recommendations. And you've created an unbelievable Instagram page. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks, Pam. I, I love Bill Nye. So that's a that's a compliment for sure. Um, so yeah, so we run a uh, an Instagram page called Dentinal Tube with some of my buddies that I teach with at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and it's a combination of clinical information and scientific information that can be used for clinical application. And yeah, a big part of it is trying to make it so that you know, learning about dental materials, which is my main topic of research, should try to be somewhat enjoyable or less miserable than maybe it was in dental school. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a full-time teacher, full-time academic at the dental school. And one of the reasons I went back and started teaching was because I felt like learning about dentistry in dental school was maybe just not fun. <laughs> like, um, and it always seemed like very hard and sometimes maybe harder than it could have been. And so that was part of my goal is like coming back and wanting to teach was, um, you know, not, not saying that I know dentistry any better than anybody else or any better at it. Definitely not, but maybe just trying to make it a little bit more relatable and fun and, and compre uh, comprehensible or com comprehensible so that like, it was just, um, easier to access, easier to understand. And so I'm glad that you said that. Cause that was a big, that was a big goal of, of my, my teaching style. And then also part of the Instagram was just to kind of showcase that, that like we can make a topic like dental materials and adhesive dentistry and polymerization and all these things that maybe didn't sound fun in dental school courses, you know, kind of um, interesting and enjoyable and easy to digest. It's fascinating. You know, it's funny. I, I think back to my student days, and what was my experience? And I feel like my experience was overwhelmed. Like when I first started learning about dental materials, I had never experienced any of them before. So it was really unrelatable. And then by the time I had a little bit of experience, I think I was so focused on just surviving that I, I learned enough really to be dangerous. So I love that you've translated like that chunk of information. And now you help people carry it forward at a time when they have enough clinical experience to say, oh my God, like I have so many aha moments going through your content and to, to be like, oh, that's why that's that. That's why we do this. And I think those little small doses, but that are super chair side relevant, that they're so impactful. So cheers. And, and it's easy for us to forget that you know, the data really drives our best choices in dentistry. So thanks for bringing the data to us in a way that's uh, easily digested and, and totally chair side applicable. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's interesting too, because I mean, I, I guess that's also like one of the big conundrums in dental education is this idea that like, there are certain things that you can teach in dental school and there's certain things that you can try to teach in dental school, but without clinical experiences, they're not so meaningful. Kind of like, you know, why we see people going back for continued education and in the dental education 
realm were like, well, we're teaching those things in dental school and nobody wanted to pay attention to them. Now they're spending thousands of dollars to go learn them externally. But it's, I think sometimes, yeah, without the um, clinical experiences, they're not as meaningful. And then when you hear them again, after some clinical experiences under your belt, you can uh, comprehend some of these, um, you know, cl this clinical information. And, um, but I mean, yeah, the, the dental tube ideas, I mean, is to try to make it some of it simple enough so that it can be digestible in, in dental school, but you're right. Some of it's not going to be as mm, interesting or as relevant until after you graduate, have some clinical, maybe problems under your belt where you're like, oh man, I like got this zirconia Maryland bridge and I realized I don't know how to bond this. And now let me go flip through, you know, dental tube or, uh, uh, Marcus Blatt's Instagram page, you know, that shows, uh, a lot of these clinical techniques or something like that. And then you're like, okay, now I really, I'm, I'm, I need this information and I want it. And you're a lot more receptive to take it in. I love how your posts are so comprehensive that sometimes you can't even cover a topic with a single post, which I think is really interesting. I like how you sort of develop it and then, you know, really can solve a problem. And I particularly enjoy your page because, yeah, I think you're right. I think that dental school, you, you know, you learn enough that you need to learn to graduate. But mm. the reality is, and even your best dental school in the country, which I think we could all fight about what that is the clinical experience is limited. You know, I mean, you're you're ready to go out to practice, but, you know, for example, you take off your provisional and the tooth prep is black out of the blue. I mean, we don't always know what to do with that. And so I think that you even, I don't know how, sometimes I feel like you're in my brain where I'll think about a birth shape or I'll think about something and I sort of am thinking about it while I'm prepping and then I'm like, huh, and then I just sort of move on. And then all of a sudden, you've done a deep dive in your post, which I think is so awesome. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, that was, it's funny you talk, talk about like burr shapes and things like that. Like that, like even some of those like little small little minutiae details of, of dentistry that you don't think about have such a big impact on like what we do. And I remember doing that with like the... 58-56-016 diamond that I had used that we were given in dental school that I was using to make all my crown props. I never sat and thought about it. Like, what are the actual dimensions of that burr? And how does like the radius of the diameter, like the, uh, sorry, the diameter at the tip of that burr affect what my margin thickness is going to be? And like the numbers in the burr have no correlation to like the the radius of that burst, you can try to figure out what your margin thickness is instead of go, yeah, that's, that was the origin of a deep dive into burrs. It's just, so I was like, I wonder what the actual thickness of my margin is if I just put half of the diameter of, or half of the, yeah, the diameter of my burr into that tooth and going back and calculating that based on like the taper of the burr, because like the, the number you get of the burr is not actually the tip diameter. It's at the, it's at the, I guess the fattest portion of the burr. So I have to go back and calculate that. So yeah, some of those little like details of of dentistry have been fun to explore, and th that wasn't even totally science. I guess it was just like going through and making little measurements on the burr and reading from the you know a lot of time is spending on the internet searching about these little information from manufacturers about certain products too have made it into Instagram so that other people don't have to go through and do that my like that minutia detail searching on on the internet. <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, that's kind of um. Yeah, some of the, those are fun little topics to explore on, on, on Instagram and those posts. I think they're making dentistry better, you know, and I think that you're really doing that, which is really important, especially when it comes to 
relevant topics right now. Now, I know you are kind enough to give us a teaser on some of the things that you have to come. Um, you know, one of which, which I think can either seem really stressful and maybe daunting to somebody who hasn't done it or has done it a limited times versus somebody who's doing this all the time are those injectable composites with a clear matrix. Can you tell us about what you're studying and what we can look forward to? Yeah, no. So we've um, kind of approaching this topic from uh, both the matrix material itself and from the composites that are being injected into them. If, if anybody's not familiar with this technique, essentially you would have like a, like a, some fractured incisors, uh, let's say, and you could either um, take an impression and pour it up and wax the teeth up, or you could digitally design them and, and uh, 3D print a mold or a model, sorry. And then once you have either your physical model or, uh, uh, or sorry, a physical stone cast, or if you have a 3D printed physical cast, you could use a clear PVS material to take impression of your waxed up tooth. And then now you've got a matrix and you put little holes in the incisal edges and you squirt flowable composite into it. So we thought we'd look at the matrix materials and the flowable composites. With the matrix materials, we're thinking, well, what are relevant things we care about? Well, one would be how translucent it is because it's nice to be able to see through it so you can see where you're uh, injecting because you don't want to have bubbles or, or over inject. Um, how much light would go through? Because if you think about this, these things are like, uh, it can be six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 millimeters thickness of, of clear PVS. We want to make sure we fully cure our composites through them. And then the other one that I hadn't thought as much about, but this was from talking with people with more clinical experience is how rigid the material is. Because if it's too um, flexible, that's not hugging the tooth as much, then it's not providing as good of a seal. And so when you're injecting, the material can flow beyond the margins and you got a lot of flowable to clean up. I've, I've tried this technique exactly once and that happened to me. Like it, it just, it, there was a decent amount of excess uh, to clean up. So uh, we've, we've looked at, you know, translucency of some of the different uh, clear PVS materials and they actually are pretty translucent where we sent off our um, uh, materials to get tested as far as like how much blue light passes through them with a collaborator at University of Florida. And then we tr we're trying to figure out how we're going to measure the rigidity, if it's compressive modulus, elastic or tensile modulus. So we're going to try to measure the rigidity of those materials. So, I mean, we haven't exactly uh, finished testing that side of it yet, but that, that's our intent. We also are going to, um, there's a new system from 3M called Filtech Matrix, which is a 3D printed matrix material. And so we're going to look at that 3D printed material and also compare that to the clear PVS materials. And then on the composite side, we're going to be looking at some flowable composites. And we thought, well, what's relevant there? We want to know uh, how strong are they because we're building up, you know, a class, something essentially like a class four out of composite. We don't want it to fracture. How wear resistant is it? Because people are putting this on occlusal surfaces and sizal edges. How well is it polished? Because you know these are a lot of times going to the anterior part of the mouth. And how radiopaque is it? Just so you can see these things radiographically. And I think those were the relevant properties that we were going to test. And we haven't quite 
got there yet. One of the th first things that we did though was try to characterize these materials. And uh, like we we burn out all the resin and measure how much filler is left so we can get filler weight percentage. And that was pretty interesting to find that the flowable, you know, flowable composites got a really bad name in the 90s because they were like 50% filled, whereas the typical composite is like 70 up to 80% filled. And so they had super high shrinkage and low flexural strength and high wear. But like current flowable composites can be almost exactly as highly filled as packables, like getting in the high 60 uh, filler weight percentage. So, you know, they... I'm not expecting them to perform too much worse than packables. Um, we'll eventually try to trust measure shrinkage stress, which is the only thing I'm really kind of worried about with flowables is if they have a higher shrinkage stress. But like, you know, current flowables actually are pretty, you know, when measure of flexural strength per se, they're not, they're not that different than packable. So, you know, the bad name that flowables got in the nineties, I don't think they deserve to get in the 2020s. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's kind of a little sneak peek and sneak peek into like what we're uh, planning on doing with that technique and the materials involved with it. Really cool. Are, are you guys also going to look at, you know, heating packable composites as well or restricted to flowables? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, we actually, when we were talking with 3M about the project design, because we we're asking them to print some of their matrix material, they had mentioned, well, if you're using that Filtech matrix system, they actually recommended to be used with heated packable composite uh, rather than flowable composite. So they said, if you might look at our system, you should look at like heated Filtech Supreme. So we're also going to look at um, some of the properties of heated packable um, composite. I mean, we haven't done a lot in our own lab looking at heat, heating composite, but there have been a lot of other researchers that have looked at heating composite and actually it can improve some of the properties of composite by heating it up to that 68 degrees C that um, some of these composite heaters will do like uh, increased degree conversion, which can help with um, strength and and it doesn't seem like it can it negatively affects any of the properties of composite by heating it up. Awesome. Can yeah. can I ask if there's like not to do's? I see a lot of posts out there and people start talking about heating composite. And I'm, I've always been an advocate of just make sure you get the proper composite warmer. Like don't tape it to your light or don't buy like the $5 coffee pot thing and cook it. Like huh. um, are, are peers of yours who are really studying that, looking into how much heat is too much heat? Um. No, I've never, I've never, um, I've never heard of that. I've never seen a study that looked at like what temperature is too high of a temperature. Um, we, I mean, I'm, I'm sometimes can be a cheapskate. And so I, I looked at getting the coffee pot warmer and finding out yeah. like, if you set the coffee pot warmer to the right temperature and I've stuck a, a temperature probe in the inside of a compula composite and, um, look to see what temperature to heat the coffee pot warmer too in order to get the proper internal temperature like you can't achieve uh you know an internal temperature that's correct with the coffee pot warmer but yeah if you don't know what temperature to set it to and just arbitrarily turn it up real real high you would think that there'd be a temperature where you start somehow setting the prematurely setting the composite and decreasing properties so yeah i think i think yeah maybe if you set it on just something really hot and you have no idea what the temperature of the thing you're setting it on that seems like that could be dangerous um but yeah one of the have you played around with that um there's a um a gun from at adent that 
they make now that will heat up the composite in like a minute, which is really nice. And it keeps it heated because that's one of the one of the things I found with composite warmers is that, uh, you know, if you take the compule out of the composite warmer and then put it in your gun in that like 30 seconds it takes to do that transfer, the composite temperature is really decreased. And so that the cool thing about the gun is it keeps it heated up to the point of an injection how long it stays heated while it's being inserted in the tooth i don't know but like at least it, it keeps it heated up the whole time that it's in the gun also i didn't really believe that it could heat it in 60 seconds and the first time we tested it it didn't it took like six minutes and then we found out i think i just wasn't pressing the right buttons or doing something wrong and i tested again <laughs> it, really could, it was like less than 60 seconds i could get it all the way up to the 68 degree c so that was neat to see that um that is a neat little product i forget that i think it's called the complex complex hd gun or something like that that um will heat it up in 60 seconds so very cool that's very cool don't worry i'll add a link to that so you can check right. it out <laughs> you also did something which i thought was really cool for a few reasons because i think a lot of us if we don't rubber dam on every single patient, you know, some of us will beat ourselves. Okay. I'm going to talk about myself. If yeah. I don't rubber dam everybody on every single patient, I think about some of these gorgeous biomimetic posts and I'm like, I, I just suck. Okay. And so you posted a whole thing about rubber dam versus saying using the dry shield or one of those, um, you know, one of those devices that will not only, you know, help to keep the mouth open, because I like that, because I find I'm more efficient if the patient doesn't have a chance to open and close. So I kind of love that. I am. But then you took it a step further and was like, you're reducing humidity if you're using one of these other types of suction devices. So then the question is, what's better? No mm. moisture or no humidity? Mm. Let's weigh in on that. Oh yeah. No, the funny story behind that was, um, one of my, my clinical mentor is someone I work with. I think you guys know Gusto Robles and, um, he's a, he, he's the guy that like got me really, um, back into using rubber dams. And I think we actually initiated the project to compare the humidity in the mouth of a rubber dam versus an ice light, uh, because he wanted to show, I mean, we, we, we kind of thought that the rubber dam was going <laughs> to produce less moisture than the ice light. So we went on Amazon and bought a hygrometer, uh, which I think was like, you, uh, you know, measures humidity. I think it was like for measuring the humidity of your lawn or something like that. Um, but we, we found a dental student and, and just put it inside of her mouth with the rubber dam and with an ice light in there. And to our surprise, kind of found out that the ice light had lower humidity than using a rubber dam. Particularly, you know, if the rubber dam had a leak in it, it was way worse. Even if it didn't have a leak in it, though, the ice light still provided lower humidity. Um, I still think, I mean, the thing that, that uh, Robles and I will, you know, still talk about is that the rubber dam will prevent circular fluid, like you said, better moisture control, uh, whereas the ice light's not going to provide that. So, I mean, I, I still think, like, if you can get a rubber dam for, like, direct composites, the rubber dam is still probably, I feel like, better at controlling uh, moisture. But like, you know, that like you said, it's the clinical reality is that it's just not always possible to get the rubber dam on there. It's you know either from like a you know standpoint of the patient's anatomy and the, what they can tolerate and what they'll let you do, and then also from a time standpoint of just like being realistic about it. Um, so I feel like the ice slide is 
I don't know. It's there's a lot of advantage of it. I mean, it's great at like keeping the mouth open, keeping uh, suction out of there. It's I I mean, it's a consistent sit, spit sucker. Like I think not. Um, I think I always kind of say like my the assistants that I work with at the dental school. I mean, they're 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 great, but like a lot of times they're overworked and trying to do a whole bunch of stuff, and so sometimes I'm left all by myself, and I'm like. Now I'm trying to hold suction and drill. And so like the isolate never leaves me. It's just always there for me throughout the whole procedure. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, and, and the fact that the, there's less humidity um, is, a, is kind of a plus because there was a neat study that again, uh, uh, Blatt's posted that I hadn't been aware of before his post that showed that they did bond strength studies in a patient's mouth with and without a rubber dam and found that if you use a rubber dam, just doing it in the mouth, the humidity uh, reduction by using rubber dam helped improve bond strength. So I'm thinking, wow, well, the ice light reduces humidity even more. So, you know, that could be another, you know, an advantage of bonding with rubber dam is reducing humidity, but it's, it's not going to get rid of moisture. So I guess you have to do that somehow else either. Uh, I don't know, just sometimes I think your matrix, you know, a matrix band and a wedge and everything like that in a class two, a lot of times that can provide isolation from moisture. So, so if you get the humidity effect from the isolate and you got your a really nicely placed matrix band in there controlling moisture, then I could see making an argument that that's just as good as using a rubber dam. I don't know. I'm going to have, now I'll have the biomedic community. Um, <laughs> um, so with me. Well, but, and we're going to put that on your shoulders. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no, I know. Well, you know, it's true though, but I feel like sometimes you have to have another approach. So David, have you ever put a rubber dam on somebody who's claustrophobic and they only tell you after you've put the rubber dam on? That would be my mom inserting veneers on seven through 10, literally 14 years ago. And I remember the day like it was yesterday. Yeah, there's nothing quite like placing the rubber dam and you're like psyched about the position of it. And all of a sudden the person attached to the rubber dam is freaking out. And I'm like, now you have to calm down so I can take the whole thing off. And what a bummer that is. So, I mean, sometimes we do need another plan for some of the things that we do. But it's also nice to know that sometimes your plan B might be as good or better than plan A or, you know, a well-executed plan A. So that's really, really cool. And I think that that makes us feel better sometimes if we can't do what we always want to do all the time. So yeah. really cool when we, you know, we, it's not that we're challenging that rubber dams are excellent. Literally they're amazing, but I think it's really a, a great evolution and a tribute to, you know, people like you, Nate, who explore what are all of our options that are, you know, legitimate options that can be helpful to us in a practice world, given a, a patient, a scenario and the day of the week and, full moon that is happening or not yeah yeah it's interesting it's funny that's something i'm i'm interested that you brought that topic up because that was something we kind of posted didn't talk much about um probably just because i didn't want to like stir up the uh you know the rubber dam fam like but like it wasn't i mean i i do use a decent amount of isolate and i and i like using it and it it was kind of neat to see that in in the study just to see it could control humidity. So thanks for bringing that up. I actually hadn't thought about that in a while. So we use that all the time, you know, all the time. Like in just like that, that reference, I think about it like the hygiene side of our practice. Our hygienists are not going to place rubber dams, put sealants on all day. It's just never going to happen. But 
to be able to have strong relative isolation and feel confident and know we're controlling humidity, that's a win that we can do all day very realistically. And that's what I love about like, I, I felt like one of the um, really cool things that I get to do is talk with, you know, people that are just killing on the clinical side, like you guys that can have like, take the stuff we're doing on the science side and then really get the, trying to find the clinical benefit from it. Because I mean, I, I see patients, but like not as many as you guys do. So it's like getting to figure out one, like how the science we use can be applied. And then also it's fun to hear about like clinical problems so that, um, that we can go back to lab and try to figure them out. Cause there's things that I think uh, about that are clinical problems, but you know, just, you know, the, uh, this limited the kind of dentistry that I practice because I have to be realistic with like how much dentistry I can do. Cause I'm only doing it a half a day a week. So it's like usually just fillings and crowns. And, uh, but like, there are other clinical problems that like people come up with about full mouth cases and stuff. And they're like, well, I'd really like to know this. And then they tell me and I'm like, Oh, we could try to figure that out in the lab. So no, I hadn't even thought about, um, using ice, the, the using ice light for sealants. Um, but yeah, that makes a lot of, makes a lot of sense. It's really uh, efficient too, because you can do one whole side really, really easily. So it's, it's actually wonderful. And I also think the way that you describe it is helpful because for example, the humidity thing, I know I'm like hung up on this today, but I can explain that to a patient, you know, I'm like, Hey, it's really humid in there. And it needs to, you know, we can't have that at my, my restorations don't bond as well. And they're like, Oh yeah, yeah. Stuff that thing in there. And you're like, that's right. Okay. So it, I think yeah. it's the patient <laughs> acceptance too. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny how dentistry cycles, right? Things, you know, become trendy and popular. So rubber dam fam is like, like rubber dam's all the rage right now. And in another five years, it'll be gone. And <laughs> we'll all know it's a wonderful thing to use, but it won't be cool and tip and trendy and there'll be in something new. And so it's great to have, you know, channels like yours and people like you who keep these things relevant that need to stay like in the forefront. We, we, we can't forget for another two decades that rubber dams are, you know, a, a valuable part of our, our process. Um, so I have a question for you. Like we're talking about like new things that are coming and how much work are you doing assessing like 3D printed resins that are coming to dentistry like fast and furiously? Well, it's funny you should ask. Yeah, we're doing a lot of a lot of research in that because it's like, I feel like, uh, you know, being in the research field, things come in trends. I remember like when I first started getting into it, like zirconia, that was when Zir uh, Bruxor, was Bruxor was first coming out. So everybody wanted to do research on uh, uh, zirconia and then like bulk composites got to be really hot and universal adhesives and like all these things would, um, as they first came to market, that we get super heavy in the funded research to look at these. And that's uh, 3D printed resins has been the thing that has probably been the biggest source of funding for us for, for research over the past three years, I'd say. Um, it kind of started, when we first started doing it, there weren't permanent crown materials. We were doing like denture-based materials and denture teeth materials. And then within the past probably two years, uh, permanent crown materials for 3D printing have become more prevalent. I think it would be because there was a change in the ADA website and their glossary of terms that you could, that a dental ceramic could be defined as something that contained 50% or more ceramic. And so like the fillers that we use inside of composite, like any resin composite, like our, uh, like direct composite resins, but also 3D printed resins uh, have ceramic fillers in them. And some of them, they figured out a way to get 50% 
ceramic filler in these 3D printed resins. So that means you could do your ADA CDT code for a 3D printed crown as a permanent crown. Now, if you use one of these materials that has over 50% um, filler in it. So there's been a couple um, companies like Sprint Ray and Pactent has one and Desktop Health and a couple of these different um, companies have released permanent crown material. So um, we started looking at strength properties and wear properties of these materials. And the thing that just, we're still trying to figure out why this is so is that they actually have some properties that are more favorable than lithium disilicate, which I was not expecting. Um, definitely not strength. I mean, strength, uh, lithium disilicate is definitely much higher in like the 350, 400 megapascals, where all of these 3D printed resins are in the around 100, 120 megapascals that we test. But wear properties, we actually found less wear of the 3D printed resins than lithium disilicate. It was so weird and shocking to me that I actually ended up sending some specimens to someone I, I know both of you guys know, Taysir Suleiman at UNC. I was like, Taysir, dude, like, what is going on? <laughs> like, maybe there's nothing wrong with our machine. Test them in your machine. And he's like, okay. So he, he tested them in his machine and found out the same thing. So we're, we're a little bit scratching our heads on this because it doesn't really make sense that the 3D printed resin uh that's got 50% fill in it would have less wear than a lithium basilicate, but uh, that's what, that's what we've um, found right now. Um, so yeah, I, I think the advantage of 3d printing a resin based crown is, is probably going to be time and cost uh, because, you know, cost, I mean, you get whole, all set up with 3d printing for probably under 10,000 with the printer and curing units, whereas set, setting up a mill is going to be, way more and the, the material costs are just these tubs of resin which are about 400 bucks and you could probably get 100 crowns or something crazy like that it's only a couple dollar cost and really there's not much upkeep on them like you don't have to buy the bird i mean we just got a, a mill it's super awesome but like those burrs that you put in the mills are expensive and um you know, and you had to go through those. Whereas with 3D printed resins, we haven't really had much upkeep with our, our printer. And we've had it for like two years. And um, see, it's a lot lower cost on fabricating 3D printed crown materials than, than milling them. So I think that's that's going to be probably the, the big advantage there. And it was, it's promising to see that the wear properties are pretty good. Um, you know, eventually it's going to have to come down to some clinical trials when we're not involved in doing those, but it's or people kind of beta testing them intraorally to see if they if some of these things we find in the lab are going to show up in the clinic that they can how well they're going to survive in the clinic um, will be interesting. But yeah, there's definitely an economic advantage of 3D printing crowns versus milling them. It's such an interesting thing right now where I was just at a course in um, Brazil, but I guess in March, and um, Pascal Manier was speaking, and he was saying, you know. What do you have to do? Like, do you need the hardest, strongest material out there or having something that's a little bit more forgiving? And it's kind of a philosophical, I, you know, conversation at this point. But as somebody this morning, not too long ago, had to literally prep a lithium disilicate crown on the tooth because I couldn't get the damn thing off. And, no. uh, you know, it was, I, I did it, I bonded. It was one of those that, Patient came back on hygiene, even though I take 
uh, you know, seating x-rays and post-op x-rays came back on hygiene. And I was like, you know, that margin just is not sparking joy. And I know I want to do better. <laughs> so I knew I was setting myself up for a nightmare just because I knew I bonded it. It wasn't done that long ago, but oh my gosh, taking that thing off was terrible. And so I feel like, you know, there's something to be said about having a material that's just more forgiving and something that we can work with a little bit more favorably. So I don't know, I guess like time will tell and we'll see, but I feel like the older I get, the like I, you know, knowing that I'm not old enough that every restoration I place today, I may never see again, you know, it would be ideal if that was the case, but I know that there'll be some that I I'll have to revisit at one point or another. And I think, you know, being able to go back and redo or re, you know, something that, you know, you can fix. I feel like there's something to be said for keeping it simple. I feel like yeah. I'm entering that final season slash geographic success era of my restorations. Cause you know, how much longer can I do this thing 30 years later? But um, Nate, this is awesome. I, I literally, I could talk to you for a hundred hours on all of these topics. So I hope we can drag you back here kicking and screaming because there's so many more questions I want to ask you. And, but Pam, I know you're going to crack the whip on us here in a second. So I am, I'm sorry. We are out of time. Do you have any last minute final thoughts for us? Um, no, just, uh, if, if anybody uh, wants to check out our Instagram, it's called at dental tube and we post uh information about kind of the cool things we're working on there but thank you guys for having me and it's and it's fun because every time i have these conversations i i just i learn a lot too and it really makes me think especially that last comment that you made pam about like yeah thinking about the replaceability of our restorations and i hadn't thought about it that way so i had a lot of fun um talking to you guys and thanks for having me and yeah i'll be back uh sometime in the future that'd be fun Thanks, Nate. Guaranteed we'll have you back. So, all right, everybody, we will see you next week. And I hope you have a good one. See you then. Thank you, everyone, for watching or listening to the show this week. And thanks to our guests and sponsors on this episode. Please check out our social media at Dr. Pamela underscore Maragliano and at Dental Economics Official. Or you can check me out at Ignite DDS or at Dr. David Rice. And go to dentaleconomics.com to receive dental economics. You can choose to receive DE in print or digitally, and you can also get the details of our Principles of Practice Management Conference on our website. If you have topics or guests or anything you'd like to talk about on the show, send us an email to dentistryunmaskedpodcast at gmail.com, and we will do our very best to make it happen. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.